Hello, and welcome to episode two of The Vast Majority from Jacobin Magazine. I am Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Bernie Sanders is running for president again, and some people on the left say that they're dreading his participation in the 2020 campaign and reliving the 2016 primary all over again, which I have to say I do not understand. Because the 2016 Democratic primary was the first campaign in my lifetime where two people vying for the presidency were having substantive debates about policy, and one of them was putting forward a strong left-wing agenda. And that was great. I don't know why we wouldn't want to do that all over again. The alternative is much worse. And from that campaign, you know, there's stuff like sometimes in Chicago when me and Jackman editor Sean Goody are sitting around... Maybe there's a little lull, we're feeling a little down because everything in the news sucks. One of us pulls up the clip from Bernie's debate with Hillary where Bernie says, I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. And we just get so hyped. Like, why would you not be excited for more moments like that in the lead up to 2020? Like, who knows what war criminals will get denounced this time around? Like, maybe we'll hear Bernie on the stump in Iowa calling for Elliot Abrams to get dragged in front of the Hague. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't you want to see that? But, of course, socialists believe that we have to look beyond electoral campaigns because there are structural barriers to what socialists can accomplish in office. And, you know, the institutions of government under capitalism are set up to block left-wing advances, even if socialist candidates are freely and fairly elected. So maybe what's most important about the Bernie campaign is how Bernie is calling for broader social movements from below beyond his own campaign. This is something that Megan Day, who's a staff writer for Jacobin, has written quite a bit about, especially in a recent piece called Bernie Sanders Wants You to Fight. She also has a piece in the most recent issue of Jacobin called Wielding the Imperial Presidency about what a President Bernie Sanders could do with executive orders. Megan, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. I think most people listening to a Jacobin podcast are already aware of the kinds of social democratic reforms that Sanders is campaigning on. He wants Medicare for all. He wants free public college, higher wages for workers, all that good stuff. People already know about all of that. But you've written recently not just about those policies that he's campaigning on, but this dynamic of him wanting to spark other kinds of grassroots movements from below, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think that we can see that especially in the new campaign slogan that he's adopted this time around, which is not me, us. So he actually brought this one up last time. He threw it into the mix. I think it was a rebuke last time to Hillary Clinton's uh, I'm with her. So he said, you know, not me, us, making it not just about an individual. But he's really started to lean on it a lot this time. And I'll give you an example of the context in which he's been bringing it up. So like, People at all of his campaign stops have been chanting, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. And he's been interrupting them. And and in in Iowa, what he did is he said, it ain't Bernie, it's you. It's not me, it's us. And then actually the crowd responded with a new chant. They were like, not me, us, not me, us. So, you know, a similar exchange has taken place at, you know, all of his early campaign stops. But in in Iowa, Bernie gave a, a rationale for his response. And this is a quote from him. He said, The truth is that the powers that be, they are so powerful, they have so much money, that no one person, not the best president in the world, can take them on alone. The only way we transform America is when millions of people stand up and fight together. So 
he seems to understand that he, you know, it's kind of like the Eugene Debs quote about like, even if I could lead you out of the desert, I wouldn't do it because somebody else could lead you back in. It's an emphasis on the necessity of collection action, collective action. And he also, when he's talking about what the powers that be are capable of, I mean, he's basically articulating a Marxist theory of the state (laughs) in saying, uh, there are going to be mobilizations against any kind of progressive agenda that I would try to carry out. And so you need to be ready to defend that agenda, you being the masses of Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, when the time comes, when the health insurance companies are trying to prevent us from carrying out Medicare for all, or when you know people, the college loan uh, providers, student loan providers are uh you know mobilizing against uh college for all you the masses of people need to be prepared to push back against that yeah that's pretty much it i mean i think that bernie understands more than ever that having a mass movement of working class people who are very powerful and creating a lot of pressure outside of the state that politicians have to respond to is extraordinarily important for him passing, you know, any aspect really of his really ambitious agenda through a hostile legislature. So Bernie doesn't come to his position as a socialist candidate for president through an, a route that maybe socialists would identify as like an ideal route or an ideal path to power. Maybe if we were sketching it out on paper, we would be like, yeah, well, when it comes time to run a socialist candidate for president, we're going to already have really strong unions. We're going to have maybe an independent party of the working class. We're going to have socialists at every level of government already in that sort of big space between like dog catcher and president. And Bernie or somebody like Bernie is going to be the representative of that very strong movement and will be reflective of and responsive to that movement. But Bernie has, it's totally different, right? Bernie is actually just sort of tasked with building that movement by running for president. And he's not going to have a ton of friends in the state, actually. Uh, In in both houses of Congress, in both parties, there are going to be a ton of politicians who are extraordinarily beholden to the capitalist class. The ones who aren't, the ones who are progressive or who are democratic socialists, what few there are, are not going to be skilled and practiced and fighting back. And they're not going to have strong institutions to rely on to back them up when they do try to fight the capitalists. So it really comes down to ordinary people are going to have to mobilize. People are going to have to protest. They're going to have to strike. They're going to have to be extraordinarily active to create pressure that those politicians, no matter what's in their hearts, that those politicians are going to have to respond to in order to protect their careers. Basically turning the capitalist like dictum that you, you know, that you take capitalist interests into account into an ultimatum where politicians are now having to choose between the will of the capitalist class and, and the will of the working class. I think I think Bernie gets this. And I think that the reason we're seeing it so much more this time around is that I think he's actually afraid that he's going to win. I was reading Ralph Miliband's classic book, The State and Capitalist Society, the other day, 50th anniversary of this year. And he was talking about the problems of past socialist and social democratic candidates who have won prime minister positions or presidencies or whatever throughout Europe, especially. And he was talking about how the tendency for these candidates has always been to try to tamp down 
the expectations of workers to say that they shouldn't take militant action too quickly because you know just just let us work our program here trust the process we're working on it uh don't go seizing any capitalists uh factories or uh taking over any landowners land uh without checking with us first because we we're we're, we're, we're going to be cautious in doing this stuff and so Miliband's whole point is like struggling for the office of the state of power within the state necessarily has led to conservatizing of the, those social democratic and socialist candidates in the past uh and he was talking about this as if it's a kind of law of political history but it struck me that that is not the case with bernie that as he is getting closer to the office of the presidency he is actually ramping up his calls for more grassroots action for uh seemingly you know i don't think anybody is quite ready to seize any factories yet but like he's encouraging actions that could lead to that kind of thing well yeah exactly like you said people aren't actually ready to seize any factories yet and if they were at some point in bernie's presidency you could certainly see i mean there are really conservatizing pressures of being you know an elected official and especially a president we could we could see bernie you know turn into one of these sort of like classic social democrats of yore and start trying to tell people to like back off a little bit but bernie in order to get sanders, to that point bernie, the bernie sanders would do that megan is that what you're saying i'm saying Say anyone, so any anyone could do that if they were in that position but what i mean is that it would be we would have in order for that scenario to even happen that you're talking about we would have gotten into a position that we're not currently in Right. We, we're not currently in a position where people are like storming the factories and, you know, somebody who's, you know, in charge of leading the kind of like social democratic or a socialist political movement has to like calibrate or tell them to back off or whatever. What, what's happening instead is that there's a resurgent working class movement in the United States. It doesn't have a ton of direction. It doesn't have very many representatives at all. And Bernie Sanders knows that he needs a movement like that to help him if he gets into office. And so he's actually conversely, paradoxically put into a position where for his own purposes, he actually has to build that movement, right, to help him get anything done. So can you talk a little bit about why it is that he has to do that? I mean, what are the structural pressures that uh, would prevent him from getting anything done if he were to, uh, or that would attempt to prevent him from getting anything done anyway, were he to win the presidency? I mean, you know, people talk a lot about capital strikes and uh, the sort of structural bias of the institutions of government against a left-wing candidate like him. So flush that out. What does that, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much it. For one thing, we're not even at that point where it's like you could have you could theoretically have a whole government full of people who wanted to institute, you know, social democracy or even socialism, and they would still face retaliation by the capitalist class that could be extraordinarily damaging to the economy of a country and therefore damaging to those politicians' careers and to ordinary people's lives, actually, in a way that would actually rein those politicians in. But like I said, we're not there yet. What we actually have instead is that in both major parties, people are actually pretty ideologically committed to being business friendly, to being pro-corporate, to, you know, cozying up to the economic elite and making sure that their interests are catered to. The only real difference being that Republicans actually come up with a justification for why doing that is actually good for working people and they don't shy away from it. And Democrats are sort of playing this disingenuous game of pretending they're not doing that when they are and kind of 
trying to, you know, convince working people that they're on their side and then going behind their backs to, you know, get monies from, from billionaire donors or hold fundra- fancy fundraisers with like pharma executives or whatever. So basically right now with Bernie Sanders, if he were to become president, he would be staring down a Congress that's full of people who just genuinely ideologically are um, beholden to and committed to preserving capitalists' ability to maximize profits. In the future, there are we could fill Congress with a bunch of people who are actually socialists, right? And we would still face a lot of problems. Right. I mean, this is the one of the most fundamental aspects of capitalism, right, is that capital, wealthy people, ultra-rich people are the ones who control the means of production, which means that they control the way that we, the normal people, the working class, the people who are not owners of capital, can get the resources we need to live our lives. And so we are at their mercy, uh, you know, if they decide they want to pull the factory or the office or the workplace out of a given place because they're mad that we have a left-wing politician in our city or in our state or in our country, they can do that. And there aren't a lot of democratic mechanisms for us to say, no, you can't do that. Uh, and so that is this central undemocratic facet of capitalism, right? Is that there's a very small number of very rich people who have the control over those, the, the, the means by which we can make our living. Uh, and we right now don't have the ability to do much about that, which means that even if you're elected to office as a socialist, you uh, are at though their 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 whims of these incredibly rich people they can they can make your life miserable they can uh you know make the economy scream as uh nixon said about uh allende salvador allende's uh chile that he wanted to you know undermine what was going on in chile because he knew that if they quote unquote made the economy scream they could make life miserable for a lot of chileans and turn chileans against the allende government right so this kind of thing is is a is central to uh, how we have to uh, think about the opportunities and, and challenges of a Bernie presidency. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And you know, the only real tool in socialist tool belt, if we ever get to that point where we could actually, you know, institute something like this, is capital controls, where you basically tell companies that they don't actually have a right to take their business elsewhere or to disinvest in the economy just because they don't like certain policies that they're, you know, regulating or overtaxing rich people or whatever. Um, And Bernie Sanders actually floated the idea of capital controls in the 1970s when he was a part of a a radical political party called the Liberty Union Party. That was sort of recently unearthed and that was fun. So we know that's, that's, you know, in his arsenal, he's thought about it before. He's got to dust off those plants. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I just wanted to say that it's what you say is absolutely true. And the really messed up part about it is that capitalists don't even have to sit in smoke-filled rooms and talk to each other about how they're going to do this. Capitalism is just an extraordinarily clever system. So, I mean, I will say that lots of capitalists do actually sit in smoke-filled rooms and talk about how they're going to fuck over working people. But or like in Silicon they, Valley, it's like it's like vape vapors. It's a it's a it's a vapor-filled room, yeah. 
but they don't have to, right? Well, all they have to do is be, you know, is look out for their bottom line. All they have to do is, you know, move their businesses around to the places where the labor costs are going to be the cheapest, where the regulations are going to be the most lax, where the policy is going to be the most business friendly. And they're just looking out for themselves. They're not actually conferring with each other. It's just that that is a structural mechanism that capitalism has built into it to punish us for trying to pass policy that can actually rein them in or undercut their profits in any way. So it seems like Bernie does have some understanding of this. And so hopefully we can uh, count on him to keep pushing for this kind of, you know, what what leftists often call uh, extra parliamentary action, right? Action that is uh, not just about electing a Bernie or an AOC or somebody like that to the state, but building grassroots movements that can be, you know, its own kind of grassroots democratic power. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, to go back to what everything that we just said sounds extraordinarily bleak, but it's not actually, it's not actually impossible to overcome it. You just need, you just need something really simple, which is a, a mass movement of hundreds of millions of working class people who won't take no for an answer, right? Well, you, I mean, I'm joking, it's obviously very difficult to build it. But the way that you build it is in struggle, you, you're not gonna, you're not gonna build it on the sidelines and then unleash it, you know, into the political sphere, you're gonna have to build it through coming up against capitalist class power and struggling for things like Medicare for all, or, you know, free college and student, you know, loan forgiveness or a $15 minimum wage or a Green New Deal or anything else that people want and need in their lives. When they come, when they, when they fight for those things, they, they learn skills, they learn confidence, and they, they develop class consciousness. And these are the kinds of things that can actually sort of flesh out a mass movement and get it to a place where it could potentially go toe to toe with capital in that sort of like, you know, that sort of like final showdown, the clash of the titans, right. Um, And so I think that Bernie is actually doing a a pretty good job of seeing his role as being a tribune for socialism, as he's on the campaign trail, like he's, he's sort of like popularizing our ideas, he's trying to raise the expectations of working people for what they should be able to demand and receive and what they deserve from a society. He's trying to unite them against a common enemy, which is the capitalist class. So uniting people who are really different from each other together against the people that they're most different from, which is billionaires who are like absolute aliens and are not like the rest of us at all. And and then, yeah. You were pointing out to, to me the other day, this is like, Dude, a, a, a billionaire has like a thousand millions. It's like very, it's just on another level of existence. <laughs> yeah, it's completely, this is the thing is that billionaires are not just slightly richer millionaires. Like I know that Bernie Sanders often talks about the millionaires and the billionaires. And I think that's good framing because it's hard to be a millionaire and to not own, you know, some productive or financial assets that would place you somewhere in the sort of like vague capitalist class. But some people who have a million dollars just like own a million dollar home and billionaires, I mean, billionaires, billionaires own the world. They own the entire world. There are three billionaires in the United States who own as much wealth as the bottom 50% of American people. Cool. Cool system. Great great system we got here. So uh, you wrote this other article for Jacobin called Wielding the Imperial Presidency, which on its face, you could say, sounds like the opposite of what we've been talking about because it's about 
what a President Bernie Sanders could do with executive orders. Um, but my my hunch is that you would say that it is not actually the opposite of that. But before we get to that that second point, can you just talk about the kinds of executive orders that you spell out in that article? Yeah, let's talk about it. So I wrote this article because I think that it is, even with all the sort of like doomsday stuff that we just ran through, it's really important to remember that the president of the United States is one of the most powerful people in the world. Maybe not more powerful than Jeff Bezos, who is the richest man in the world, but that's the sort of like, that's the real sort of clash of the titans, unless you bring in a mass movement of hundreds of millions of working class people, right? So the president of the United States actually has considerable power. And specifically, like we were talking about how difficult it would be for him to get stuff through a hostile legislature. And then of course, there's also the you know reactionary, like judiciary, who's going to rule things unconstitutional and so on. But there is a, a trick that presidents have up their sleeve. One weird and trick. It's one weird trick. And it's executive orders. And modern presidents pass hundreds of these. In the past, presidents have passed thousands of them. They can be used for really bad stuff, like, you know, interning Japanese Americans, And they can be used for really good stuff, like, uh, you know, large portions of the New Deal were instituted through executive order. Those, by the way, same dude, Franklin Roosevelt. Um, And so, you know, executive orders can can and should be considered a tool in a socialist president's toolbox. And so I, I wrote this article to sort of run through some like key areas. It's not really comprehensive, but I talked to some people who know this stuff inside and out. And I was like, what could Bernie Sanders actually do by himself with a stroke of a pen if he were president? And there's some really cool stuff in there. Like, let's just take climate, for example. You know, by executive order, a president could just set aggressive uh, greenhouse gas and energy use reduction goals across the federal government, including the military, which is one of the world's worst polluters, and could tell all appropriate executive branch agencies like the EPA and the Interior Department and the Army Corps of Engineers to account for greenhouse gas impacts of any proposed infrastructure project and just declare that, you know, anything that would exacerbate climate change, it's just going to get rejected, right? And this guy I was talking to at the Institute for Policy Studies, uh, Basav Sen, told me this is obviously going to lead to litigation. It's not like when you do this, it doesn't produce, uh, you know, a reaction from the capitalist class, they're going to sue and everything. But now guess what, they're tied up in lawsuits instead of building, you know, horrible infrastructure projects that are actually like ruining our environment, right? Well, not only that, but you are forcing a public conversation about these projects and the extent to which they will lead to global warming. Like it's an opportunity to like make the the fossil fuel companies like actually have to be like, no, 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 we actually need to destroy the planet. We need to burn bajillion tons of uh, carbon, put it up into the air. Like we, we have to do that. You're, you're making them like you're calling them onto the, the, uh, onto the carpet to count for what they're doing. Exactly. And that's just not happening right now. And it wasn't happening under Obama, who had these same powers, right? He had the power of executive order. He could have used them to basically pick fights with capitalist elites and turn that fight into a sort of like central pole in our political discourse and like raise class consciousness that way and build people's militancy that way. But Obama didn't do that. Right. So so Bernie Sanders could, though. And, you know, Donald Trump actually does. This is actually a point that I was trying to make in my piece is that Trump's pretty brazen with the executive orders. And some of them have been 
ruled unconstitutional. Um, some of them have been met with legislation from Congress that's intended to undermine them. But they've still managed to have an enormous effect on the American political sphere. So, for example, the Muslim travel ban that Trump instituted, that got ruled unconstitutional. But it has absolutely contributed to a heightened climate of xenophobia and, and Islamophobia in the United States. Like, you can, presidents can use executive orders to just change the parameters of politics. So can you talk about some of the other ones that you list out in the article? Yeah, I want to talk about foreign policy a little bit because the the cool and not cool thing about presidents is that they're like in charge of the entire military. So when we have bad presidents, they do horrible things. Um, Most of the presidents are bad. Good presidents, though, the best ones we can point to also doing terrible things. So, but, you know, presumably, uh, you know, the commander in chief could withdraw troops from wherever they wanted to. Wherever troops are deployed, the president can just withdraw them by executive order. Um, the president can stop doing things like carrying out assassinations and other like counterterrorism actions and secret bombing campaigns and the kill list. The kill list. Well, you know, well, wouldn't it be great to get rid of the kill list? The kill list can be gotten rid of by President Bernie Sanders via executive order. Would he do it? I don't know. Could we, you know, make a stink and try to get him to do it? Absolutely. And he would certainly have the power to. And again, this is basically about if he were to do this kind of stuff, he's going to face major, major pushback from the military industrial complex and from their ideologues in politics, the right wing. But now we've turned the political conversation into a referendum on American imperialism. And that's just not something that's happening right now. So that Bernie Sanders could do that kind of thing via executive order. Um, there's a ton of other stuff in foreign policy. I'll just name one is like, you know, there, there's this program that the Pentagon has where it provides free and like cheap military equipment to U.S. law enforcement agencies. That's how you have tanks on the street that are like mowing down Black Lives Matter protesters, you know, in Ferguson after Michael Brown was killed. That's that's where you get this sort of militarization of American police departments. It's not the only source, but it's a huge source. Well, as the commander in chief, Bernie Sanders could just end that program. Right. And then not only are we actually, you know, contributing materially to stopping police brutality in American cities, but we're also having a conversation about the role of American imperialism and the American war machine in, you know, uh, tamping down dissent here at home. You uh, also talk about in the article uh, student loans, perhaps the one of the most exciting things, uh, maybe not for all Americans, but uh, I was really hyped when I read it. I was like, oh, I think I'm going to make sure my student loan payments are at the absolute minimum they can be just in case we get a President Bernie who does what you suggested. <laughs> That's smart, Micah. I mean, I, yeah, place your bets on socialism. Why not, right? <laughs> Go all in. All eggs in this basket. Well, here's here's the thing about that is it's can actually you explain so... It, explain what it yeah, is. Yeah, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to explain it. It's it's super exciting. So I didn't realize this until I, until I started talking to people. But this is one where just the way that the law is set up gives the president an extraordinary amount of power in this region. So basically when Congress was first given the power to issue and collect loans, that was in 1958, the Department of Education also received a power that's called compromise and settlement, which means, you know, waiving the right to collect on them. And then in 1965, the Higher Education Act solidified that power specifically in the hands of the Secretary of Education. Well, who does the Secretary of Education work for? The president. So Sanders could issue an executive order directing his secretary of education to just 
write off all student loan debt immediately for which the federal government is the creditor. And that's the majority of student loan debt in the United States. But some of it is actually, you know, there are like private lenders involved. Well, this executive order could also, this is what someone who works for the the debt collective was telling me, the executive order could also direct the Department of Education to assume all of the debt of borrowers who owe money to private lenders as well and write that off too. And it would just reduce American student loan burden from $1.5 trillion to zero immediately. I mean, now, and I want to add to this, that's going to be met with an enormous amount of pushback from the capitalist interests that are vested in these student loans, which is a huge, huge part of our economy. There's no question that this would lead to, you know, like wrangling in Congress and in the courts and, you know, uh, you know, attempts at subversion from these, you know, elements of the capitalist class and so on and so forth. We but think that's the, a fight, the Fox right? News discourse now is bad. Wait until President Bernie Sanders orders the end of all student loan debt. Exactly. But, you know, it, but that's what I'm saying is like, that's a fight we want to have. Like, yeah, it's not going to be done without a fight, but that's a fight we want to have. And that's kind of why when I wrote out this list of executive orders, I really tried to show in most instances how I think that they can be catalysts for the self-organization of working people. Because people with student loans are going to see this happening and they're going to be like, that's my future on the line. Like, hell yeah, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to go you know, to town halls and I'm going to go do protests and I'm going to flood into the streets and I'm going to fight tooth and nail to make this happen. But right now, why aren't people flooding into the streets to get their student loans canceled? Because nobody's talking about doing that. The only person with the power to do that is not talking about doing that. So that would be the best case scenario would be that people do flood into the streets in response to President Bernie Sanders' executive orders, or even before he's president, they flood the streets because he's calling for a movement from below. I suppose we shouldn't be naive. If he assumes the office, he very much could become that kind of social democratic or socialist politician that Ralph Miliband was talking about, who takes the office and has all these structural pressures, and then they, they tell everybody to tamp things down. That's a long ways off from where we're at now but you know history happens in in leaps sometimes so we we could arrive at that situation and i i suppose we it's up to you know socialists and other kinds of working class militants to make sure that if we got to that point that we that we would not uh that we that we we would not back off of that kind of street level power that the working class would have to be building Yeah, 100%. I mean, our allegiance is to the working class and our goal is to build working class power. And right now it's kind of lining up with this sort of pursuit of the executive office by a socialist. But there are it's very conceivable that situation a situation would arise in which there would be these these would be misaligned goals. Right. And then we have to step in and figure out a a new way to relate to like a president, Bernie Sanders or whatever. But I did want to say, going back to the Miliband stuff that you mentioned, like there are so many historical examples of this happening, but in almost every single case, the executive is leading a party, right? Is leading a party of oh, that's devoted to, you know, social democratic or socialist politics and is actually put in a position where they have to, you know, make compromises in order to preserve the party for future fights. I mean, Bernie Sanders' complete isolation and complete lack of a party is like not great. That's not an ideal scenario <laughs> no, for bad. us by any means. That's <laughs> bad, actually. But but it does have one upside, which is that it would be really hard for him to become like 
bureaucratized in that very specific way that we've seen play out through the history of social social democracy because it's not like he has a party to pre- preserve right I well mean, but obviously- you could you know wall street would be happy to like welcome him to their ranks or you know there, there will be structural pressures against him even though he has spent literally his entire life fighting those those forces all right, I have no idea what's going to happen with Bernie Sanders, Micah, except for this. I know that Bernie Sanders is not going to go cozy up with Wall Street. Looking, <laughs> it look, not, not, it's, I, all right, I, I stake my reputation on it. He's going to be an enemy of Wall Street for the, the, for the duration of his tenure. I want, to, I want to say thank you to my good friends at Goldman Sachs. Like, we're, we're never going to <laughs> oh, hear that. God. Oh, God. <laughs> but when, and we should say, uh, I mean, all of this is not totally theoretical, I don't think, because... I mean, we're talking about the the uh, what would happen if you were president, which who knows a lot of things would change, could change before then. But as of right now, I think he is helping spark some of that kind of working class militancy that we are seeing right now. I mean, he his campaign uh, injected class politics into our political discourse, and I think he played a role in something like the teacher strike wave starting right like both because in west virginia some of the key organizers of that strike first met around the bernie sanders campaign but also just because he is injecting that sense of of militancy uh, of of, you know of of class struggle into the political discourse and it, it manifests in in ways that you couldn't have predicted it manifests in things like illegal wildcat teachers strikes yeah, I think the the main ingredient there is something that I mentioned before, which is raising the expectations of the working class. So teachers' working conditions and their pay have been getting worse for a long, a really long time. But what changed was that, and we, this does not owe, by the way, entirely to Bernie Sanders, but you're right. And I've spoken to rank and file teacher unionists and strike leaders who've told me that something snapped for them. It snapped into focus with the Bernie Sanders campaign. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it's not like, you know, things got so bad necessarily that they reached a breaking point and that's that's all that happened. It's that things got so bad that they were about to reach a breaking point and then there was a glimmer of hope. And then there was somebody who was telling them what they ought to what they ought to be, you know, what kind of pay they ought to be making, how much dignity they ought to have on the job, how much control they ought to have over their working conditions and so on. And it's the combination of, of those two things. It's not just that things get so terrible that people finally snap. Things can get really, really, really bad and people actually won't necessarily mobilize as a, as a class you know, on their own behalf, it takes something else. It takes, like I said before, raising expectations, you know, challenging the parameters of what's politically possible. And I think that's what Bernie Sanders's uh, campaign in 2015 did pretty effectively. And I think that he continues to do that as, as he goes, you know, around the country and he gives speeches and he's on TV all the time. It's really like Medicare for all had, I think, 21% approval rating in 2014. Medicare for all, according to some polls, now has a 70% approval rating. Half of the country changed their mind on this. And it's not because it's not because half of the country had fine health care in 2014 and then really bad health care in 2018. It's because half of the country saw a different option. They saw they saw that something else, something different was possible. So that's that's one of the main roles of someone like Bernie Sanders right now. And really any, you know, politician who we might consider to be like a class struggle politician is to offer people a positive political vision that can actually inspire their militancy that can sort of like interact with their with their rage and turn that rage from like a sort of hopeless or resigned rage into you know a fighting rage 
Well, whatever happens with Bernie and with working class movements and whether he's president and whether he's writing executive orders, uh, whatever happens on that front, I think we can all agree that nobody should be paying more than the minimums on their student loans right now because you don't know what's going to happen with Bernie. They could, they could all go up in a puff of smoke. So don't, you know, hold on, hold on to your, uh, just, just pay those minimums. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Megan. Yeah, thank you. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.